0: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. This is Friday, June 10th, 2020. I am Kevin McDonald, executive producer here for New Mexico in Focus. We appreciate you tuning in. Another jam-packed show this week as COVID-19 continues to resurge here in New Mexico. I'll let you behind the scenes a little bit in terms of our production of the show. We tape... Most of the show Thursday mornings, especially the line of opinion panel segments, and this week it was Thursday afternoon when Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham did her updates on COVID-19, and she announced at that time that she was rolling back some of the public health order restrictions that had been loosened at the start of June. The biggest thing there is that um, in dining experiences and restaurants is now shut down again. Outdoor dining can continue at 50% capacity but in-dining is no longer going to be allowed as of Monday and that's again because surges continue or the cases continue to surge in New Mexico. Also state parks are off limits to out-of-staters. You have to prove state residency to get into state parks. And uh, still tons of questions to to be addressed around all this. The one that most people are focused on is back to school and the hybrid plan that the Department of Education has released. Uh, If cases continue at the pace that they are going right now, we'll see if that's actually possible or not. We'll have more on that in the show this week uh, as well. But a lot of COVID talk, uh, a lot of talk about masks that continues to be a hot button issue. The governor did say in her presser on Thursday that she now wants people anytime you're outside to have a mask on. Uh, So that includes if you're just going for a walk with the dog. Uh, If you're exercising, uh, masks should be worn. And, of course, enforcement is a big issue around that that we've talked about, we'll continue to talk about. But it's something the governor really wants everyone to take seriously as we try to flatten the curve once again and a lot of what's going to happen in the next few months will get decided in the next few weeks, I would imagine. And so we wanna kick things off this week by talking about the surges, what might be behind it, response to it, as well as some of the cases we're seeing now of just um, flagrant disobedience around the masks and why that is. Face coverings become a political hot button issue. The line will get into that uh, this week. Joining us on the line panel this week, we've got former State Senator Dee Feldman and former Minority House Whip Dan Foley, as well as Dave Mulrine with Everybody Votes. Great panel to talk to us this week. We'll kick things off there with host Gene Grant and COVID-19 Updates.
1: While well, the numbers have not been encouraging, after weeks of lower case counts during lockdown, positive cases keep piling up as New Mexico gets back to work and play. The balance New Mexico thought it had achieved between staying home and staying employed looks even more delicate. Here to talk through what we're seeing is our line opinion panel. Former state senator and line regular Didi Feldman joins us. Former house rep and line regular Daniel Foley. We're always grateful to have his insights. We also welcome line guest Dave Mulryan. He's founder of Everybody Votes. And Dave, I'm going to stick with you on this. We're still doing okay with hospitalizations, but as we know, we don't have to look any further than Arizona, then, you know, this can get bad in a hurry. One thing follows the next. Yes. What went wrong for New Mexico? What went wrong here?
2: Well, I, I think in general, you, you know... Um, It's one of those things. I was in New York. I went to New York in 1983. And I swear to God, the first person that died of HIV died on the day I arrived. And um, the the thing, the big problem that you have is is that people do not understand exponential numbers. Here's an interesting point. In 1985, there were 550 cases of HIV that were recorded because we had a test so we could find out. By 1994, that is nine years later, HIV was the leading cause the death of white men ages 45 to 55 not gay white men white men in general it went that quickly so i think what's happened here is is that you know again these governors and the federal government and the politicians in charge are trying to balance take it's your money or your life they're trying to keep the economy from completely stalling yet if you get everyone who's very ill, the, comp- the the economy stalls by its by its nature, and I think that one of the things that that we're seeing is is that it's not just about the COVID crisis; it's about what kind of resources are we going to have. I mean, Houston, which is the fourth or fifth largest city in the country, is 100 percent out of hospital beds, right. and They're so up against the wall. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Yeah. Let me slip in a couple folks here. Sorry
1: about that, Dave. Um, Didi, let me get to you next on this. You know, turning around a spike is a lot different than preventing one. And now the governor finds herself in a place where she's playing defense instead of being on offense. And, you know, this four, I, I'm, let me hone in on the 14-day quarantine. A lot of chatter on Facebook about this. How to actually pull this off? Are folks, really, Can we really expect people to come to Santa Fe, Taos, wherever, and quarantine for 14 days before they go out and shop and visit? How, how viable is that?
3: Well, I think that's going to be a very big hit to tourism, and of course, mm-hmm. we're uh, very dependent on tourism. I noticed today that uh, the New Mexico Tourism Department had taken out an ad in Arizona and Texas papers, mm-hmm. informing people about this quarantine, which um, you know, which will definitely bring down uh, the number of tourists. Um, but we have to worry about in-state tourism as well. I mean, that's a plus and a minus because um, people have cabin fever, and I- this is this is part of our problem of why we are spiking now. Is because people are not um, are not being careful and uh, are getting tired of uh, staying at home mm-hmm. and don't want to wear masks and. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's something we have to do together. But unfortunately, um, people have lost that feeling of one for all and all for one. Uh, and instead, the question is: it maybe it's acceptable to open businesses, and maybe it's acceptable to lose a certain number of lives in order to keep our economy going. Um, that's a that's a really um, sad situation. And I think you see the governor almost acting like a mother and saying, you've got to do this. You've got to mind your P's and Q's or we're not going to be able to open up the schools. So, you know, there is the the civic spirit of helping one another and not passing this on to other people. But there is also the enforcement issue and the issue of like, not being able to open up any further if mm-hmm. people are not you know are not uh, playing by the rules. so uh, it's a tough situ- tough time to be a leader of a state um, especially when some of your local officials are saying you know we're not, we're not going to enforce it. We're not going to enforce our, our laws essentially yeah. we're going to pick and choose which ones we can do. You just so-
1: anticipated, you just anticipated my question to Dan. You know, the governor had a tough piece out—an op-ed in the Journal on Wednesday, I believe, or Tuesday or Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. You know, basically saying, "Guys, we need you to cooperate here. Whether you're city managers, you know, sheriffs, especially." I don't know if you read it, Dan, but what what do you what do you think of that? Have you heard about it through the grapevine? What's been the reaction in Republican circles?
4: Well, Gene, as you know, I read a lot of books on tape, so um, you know it's got to be a got to got to be a book on tape for me to read it. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, I mean, the reaction in Republican circles is, you know, everything from, you know, the government's coming to get you to we just got to figure this out and work together. Um, I think I think there's a, a the, the problem. I think people are missing, in my opinion, um, and I'm not blaming anybody for it. I just think it's the inconsistent communication. Right. When you tell someone you got to stay home and you can't go to the barbershop. Because you're going to get coronavirus, you're going to you're going to get COVID nineteen. But you can go to Walmart where nine hundred people are standing in line, and you're safe there, or you're safe at you know insert you know Costco or Sam's. And I think that's people are having a hard time connecting with saying, wait a minute, I can't, I cannot, I cannot uh, patron a friend of mine's business and go buy my milk and eggs at a small grocery down there. or I can't go get my hair but, cut. But aren't
1: we, aren't we past that point, Dan? It sounds like you're talking about a problem from four weeks ago. I mean, you can go to places now. The question is, can you do it appropriately with a mask?
4: So, so A lot Gina, of people
1: out there are reason, just not, not going to wear a mask.
4: For some reason, every time we do this, you never let me finish the thought because you don't agree with me. And I get it. I get it. Um, but to me, it's the foundation of the message. You're asking me why people aren't buying into this. I think it's because it's a constantly shifting message, right? You know, you can't do this stuff. Now you can. Now you kind of can do this. I'm not saying that that's anybody's fault. I'm saying that, you know, the conversations that I hear from people is people are like, it's amazing that the coronavirus is only affecting people in groups of 10 or more. If you're in less than 10 people, you're not going to get the coronavirus. I think we should be wearing a mask. It makes no sense to me not to wear a mask. Um, You know, it makes no sense to me why you shouldn't be taking the precautions that you should be taking. I'm answering your question, saying that when there's an inconsistent message coming to people throughout this deal, it's hard to get people to buy in at any point. And I think that's been the problem nationally. Right. I mean, you know, Southwest Airlines, you know, we went on a trip not too long ago uh, and, you know, we we got out during a little break in there. And for some reason, they're not renting out. They're not selling the middle seat, which I'm happy for. So I, I guess, you know, if you sit on one seat, Gene, and the guy between us is empty, and the person next to us, the per- and I'm next to you with one gap between us, apparently you're COVID safe there, right? So, I mean, it's just, it's just a message that people are not understanding.
1: Let me go to Didi on this. You know, we've got a, seg- a segment, a really good one coming up in a couple of minutes, illustrating the risks that workers are facing trying to tell people to wear a dang mask. In fact, we've got an interview with the uh, my, my colleague Megan Kemmerich is talking to the young man who got threatened with that fellow with a gun at a pet store. And mm-hmm. I want folks to tune in for this very interesting conversation. Didi, Dee Dee, what has to happen here? I mean, I hear Dan, but if all, if everyone, you know, if we have a significant amount of folks who don't want to wear a mask, we're just going to keep cycling back to this yes. over and over.
3: Yes. And I think the statistics are that since the restrictions were loosened here in New Mexico, um, that... Um, they were lifted slightly in June, and mm-hmm. as a result, the case, the number of COVID cases has increased by 60%. So mm-hmm. it's very clear. I, I agree with Dan. The message has not been communicated well, but, um, the, but it's a fluid situation. And so things change very rapidly. I mean, you could take the real totalitarian approach and and say, you've got to stay at home, and here's your ankle monitor to make sure that you're, you're still at home. And if you're not at home, we're going to throw you in jail because we know, the ankle monitor tells us. We live in a free society. We live in a free society and people are used to personal freedoms. And unfortunately, they also uh, have come to distrust the government, distrust, distrust the media, all of the um, all of the um, institutions that we used to trust to tell us the truth, we no, we no longer believe in. And
4: when elected, elected let me
1: jump in here, because I'm a little bit short on time. I appreciate
5: that, Didi, for sure. Not following
4: the rules. I think that's a very bad precedent. So when elected officials say, "I'm not wearing a mask at this city council, or county commission meeting," or "those doctors are crazy," I think I think asking someone to wear a mask is is literally you know do i enjoy wearing a mask not at all it's not like they're telling you to wrap yourself in bubble wrap and stay home and so i think this whole not wearing a mask not social distancing mm-hmm. i just you know people not listening and buying into at least taking those minimal steps i think especially yeah. if an elected an official is crazy gotcha
0: Mentioned this at the start of the program, but back to school, a lot of eyes, attention, are focused on what's going to happen with the back to school plan. The Department of Education has released a hybrid plan that would include some in-class experiences, a couple of days a week for students, and then online, a mix of the two. And of course, a lot of that is going to depend on whether or not we can keep COVID-19 in check in the next few weeks. This week in a Facebook Live, Gene Grant sat down with the head of the Albuquerque's Teachers Federation, Ellen Bernstein, to talk about the union um, thoughts and reactions to that PED hybrid plan. And you can watch that whole thing on our Facebook page at New Mexico in Focus. Encourage you to do that. A lot of really interesting things that the union is considering, teachers, staff, everybody involved in back to school. There's just so many elements to think about. But right now I want to play you just a little bit of that interview where Ellen talks about um, the the concerns and the leeriness that still exists amongst teachers and and the union about this return to school plan as it is and with the surge in cases in New Mexico, and what they are doing to respond to that and, and to express those concerns. So here's host Jean Grant and Ellen Bernstein from the Albuquerque Teachers Federation.
1: On Tuesday, I I sat and talked with Ellen Bernstein of Albuquerque's largest teachers union, which is very leery of the reopening plan out of PED. You can see all of it on our Facebook page. Uh, Here, we talk about the thinking behind the union polling its members on the reopening plan and why some teachers actually want to put this all on hold. What's the feedback you're getting as an organization and as a union?
6: Well, we're getting a lot of that feedback. We put the PED plan out there and we asked for comments. We got a lot of questions and comments about the details, the safety of it all. I know that up to 25% of our workforce in APS could be considered high risk, whether it's because of their age or because of uh, immune issues or a cancer survivor. But then the unknown about what is and isn't safe. So I crafted a message and I sent it out there. I said, listen, we know that real school is best for kids and we want real school, but real school has to be really safe. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to suggest, depending on the feedback from everybody, that we postpone the hybrid plan for one month. We work from August 5th until right after Labor Day. We will teach. We will put in the infrastructure necessary to teach well. We will connect with families. We will assess their needs. We will recreate environments to be physically distant and safe. And then depending on the numbers, because I believe, I trust our governor. She's done an amazing job during this pandemic. I believe that she will keep looking at the numbers. And even if we start online for a month, We have to look again to see whether or not we have stable numbers for at least two weeks, which is the recommendation nationwide, I think worldwide, Mm -hmm. or if we're still climbing. Because if we're climbing, schooling is important. In-person schooling is necessary for people's emotional health and routine and for opening up our economy, but not at the expense of the life of a single teacher or, or God forbid a student.
0: can't go anywhere these days without someone offering their opinions on face coverings and masks that goes from it's a no-brainer that you should wear it. it helps protect vulnerable people from getting it it's not about protecting yourself but protecting those around you all the way to the other end of the spectrum about an infringement on civil rights and can't tell me how to live my life and so it's an interesting phenomenon about how politicized and um just what a flashpoint masks have become. So we wanted to dive into that a little bit more and correspondent Megan Kamrick is helping us do that this week. She's got an interview now with a couple individuals, one of which is a UNM psychologist who can talk about why some people are so put off by the idea, um, just out of principle. And she also talks with the young man. You've probably seen him in the news, works at a pet store in Rio Rancho and, um, saw a man, an individual, come into the store without a mask and approached him and told him that it was required. And uh, by his account, the man pointed to a gun on his hip and said, you really going to make me put on my mask? And uh, so very much a bullying tactic that um, we're also following what reaction might happen with that. We, we understand that a police officer has talked to him, but I'm not sure if there's even an official police report at this point, let alone any charges or fines for this man for not having a mask. So um, get his insights on this and what it's like to be an employee who is really tasked with enforcing this mask ban that's been put on by the state, as well as, again, that larger conversation about the divide over masks. Here now, Megan Kamrick.
1: New Mexicans are required to wear a mask out in public but while it's a mandate, it's lightly enforced by police agencies, leaving it up to retail employees. Sometimes that can lead to uncomfortable and even potentially violent situations. NMIF correspondent Megan Kamerick talked this week with pet store worker Cody Westfall about his own interaction with an armed customer and with psychologist, Dr. Samuel Roll to help explain why masks are such a flashpoint.
7: Thank you both for joining me here on New Mexico in Focus. Cody, you work at Simply Diego's Pet Store. Store policy and the state's public health order both say customers must wear a mask and you had an uncomfortable, a potentially violent altercation with the customer. Can you you tell us what happened?
8: Yeah, um, like you mentioned, uh, we are personally enforcing a uh, mandatory mask rule uh, on top of the uh, governor's mandate. Um, We had a customer come in and I mentioned this to them, you know, let them know that uh, a mask was required and uh, things escalated pretty quickly. Uh, Then he approached me and uh, um, showed off his semi-automatic pistol that was uh, attached to his uh, holster on his hip um, and uh, asked me if I was gonna make him wear one. he asked me that twice. The first time I was like, I, I don't understand what uh, having a weapon has to do with coronavirus, but okay. Uh, and I just kind of repeated myself. Uh, and then he repeated himself also, you know, are you are you sure you're going to make me wear a weapon? And at that point, I uh, kind of got the hint that he was intimidating me or threatening me. So um you know, I just was at a loss of words at that point, so I just kind of shrugged it off and, uh, you know, he gave me a dismissive wave and just chuckled to himself as he uh, walked out the door. So the whole thing lasted about like 25 to 30 uh, seconds. So uh, it was pretty brief, but it felt like uh, it definitely felt like it would uh, last a lot longer.
7: Dr. Roll, as more and more states and hospitals and businesses demand mask use, it has become clear that simply wearing a mask has become an expansion of one's political opinion, not a question of public health safety. Do you think what's hap- Do you think that's what happened here? And can you explain this phenomenon?
9: Sure, I think the political issue uh, complicates everything, but uh, there are certain people because of their personalities. Um, uh, have a deep objection to anybody ordering them to do anything. So in terms of the developmental stages, if you've ever seen an 18 to two-and-a-half-year-old boy, he'll tell you no about everything. Come to dinner, no, even though he wants to eat. Go kiss your Aunt Bertha, no, even though he loves her. Because he's learning the sense of autonomy. And so he exaggerates the sense of autonomy by saying no, even when no doesn't make any sense. And there's some people as adults who are oppositional in that way. And so, when you impose them with authority, they feel personally denigrated. And so, this is the act of a denigrated man. It's not just political. He feels denigrated. And so, he has to show that he is more masculine than you are by showing his gun. So, there are some people who will, and we call that dominant stupidity. Because some people will ensure that they are, show that they're dominant even when it's stupid, even when it's not in their best interest even when it's not in the interest of their child at home or their wife or their loved ones, they say, no, you tell me to wear a mask, I'll say no. And the more you sound like you have authority or more you use authority like the governor, the more upset they get because they're like the little kid who's saying, no, I do it myself, I do it my own way.
7: And authority also means scientific evidence or anything like that.
9: It does mean scientific evidence, but especially if it means a governor and especially if the governor is a woman. No, right? A woman, yeah, I'm not doing it. So you try not to invoke the governor because you, you you now you're invoking another authority and he says, yeah, but I've got a gun. So, and I'm a man with a gun on my hip. So you don't have to be a Freudian to know what that means. Uh, I've got something that you don't have and so I don't have to listen to you.
7: <laughs> so, Cody, did it feel political to you?
9: Absolutely.
8: Um, I mean, I... I I am of the mind that this is absolutely not a political issue. This is a, like you've mentioned, this is a health issue. This is a science issue. The scientists have stated the facts. Listen to the science. Um, But uh, over the course of the last month or so, when uh, these this mask issue has taken you know front and center page. more and more like like was mentioned you know people are taking this as a political stance this is you know people you're either on this side or you're on that side there's no you know there's no neutral ground in this it's either you belong to this group or this group it's it's kind of like tribalism it is at, at its worst um, so I definitely believe uh, among just about anything else uh, in this uh, particular political climate um, it, this has definitely been a politicized issue.
7: What is it like having to confront customers on an issue like this? You've sort of been put in this position in a way.
8: Yeah, I mean, generally, it it's not been too bad. You know, we we've I'd say like roughly like ninety eight percent of our customers are more than happy to oblige with us. Uh, and even the ones that come in and we mention it, they're like, "Oh, I forgot to put it on," or "Up, oh, I just it just slipped my mind." Uh, the small percentage of people who are opposed to wearing it will either promptly, you know, leave the store or put up a small fight uh, and then either, again, leave the store or put the mask on. So, I mean, most people have been pretty cordial about it. So, it, again, it's just this super, very uh, small minority uh, of people who are, you know, shouting the loudest or making the most noise that are, you know, getting the most attention.
7: Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has decided to take her mandatory mask order one step further. She's introduced $100 fines and criminal misdemeanors for those who do not follow the mask guidelines. Is this an appropriate response or do you think something else would work better?
8: in this instance like how else are, are are if there was no penalty no fine like how else are, is she going to enforce this there there definitely aren't enough police officers there's not one police officer for every individual so it's near impossible for a specific set of police enforcers to make sure that everybody is going to wear a mask so to add uh, a penalty of fine or a uh Uh, a blight on your record, I mean, I feel like that's a bit more of a, 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 you know, instance to wear a mask, you know, you're not only threatened with the police catching you, but you're also going to get a fine. And it's also going to be considered a misdemeanor. I mean, it's definitely a step in the right direction. I mean, I'm not quite sure what else could be done aside from adding penalties that's going to make people, you know, wear these masks and listen to what
7: scientists have had to say, so... Quickly, as we wrap up, Dr. Roll, I mean, you've already said the kind of top-down requirement might not work very well. What do you think would be the best way to get people to follow public health mandates?
9: Well, and again, most people follow it, whether it's Republican or that, most people follow it. And some of the people who resist do have some political agenda. But even people with political agenda, else they'd be about 50-50 or 60-40, whatever political divide is. It always, when you're trying to get someone, whether it's a two-year-old child, who doesn't want to come to you or a 10 year old child who doesn't want to go to the dentist or a 12 year old child who doesn't go to school or a 50 year old child who doesn't wear a mask you follow the same procedures that increase the probability of success one is you try to understand what the person is doing sweetheart i know you don't want to go to the dentist it's better than saying if you don't go to the dentist your teeth will rot or you, you won't get candy so understand any recommendation and understanding communicates brings down and we've done studies brings down the tension I understand, sir, that you do not want to wear a mask, and I understand they'd be inconvenient and you don't believe in it. That itself will calm down most people. you understand, show understanding. After understanding, you make an i vow statement. Not the governor wants you to, because then that, 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 uh, that ups the odds. You think the governor, I got a gun here, boy. So then you make a, an i that just like you would with a kid. I know it's not fun to go to the dentist, and I know you don't like it, but I need you to go to the dentist. I know, sir, that you feel uncomfortable and you don't think it's reasonable to wear a mask. I understand it. But I'm asking you, I'm asking you to do me a favor and I wish that you would wear the mask while you were in this store.
7: Well, there's so much more to talk about on this topic. I'm sure we'll continue to be talking about it for a while. Thank you both so much for joining us to discuss this.
0: Thank yeah.
8: you, ma'am. Thank you for having me on.
0: Moving away from COVID-19 for just a minute here. We're celebrating a milestone at New Mexico in Focus this week. We hope you have noticed over the last few years our Our Land segments. They run once a month on the second Friday of each month. This is in-depth investigative environmental reporting that you won't find anywhere else on the airwaves in New Mexico. We're thrilled to work with Laura Pascas. She's the preeminent environmental journalist in the state. She helps us out with these each month. As we look at issues like drought and climate change and um, wildlife restoration, a variety of topics. And this this month marks three years that we've been doing Our Land. Really proud of the work we've done there. We won a Top of the Rockies Award from the Society of Professional Journalists for the region for the work on Our Land recently. Something we are really proud and committed to here And we want to shout out Laura Paskus for all of her terrific work there. She brings the stories to us. She researches them. She vets them. And I know she talks a lot about how one of her goals is to bring complicated science to us in an adjustable way and to provide solutions, fixes that we can all embrace in our lives to help with some of these challenges we face with our environment in the land of enchantment, this land that we all love so much. Uh, So we talked to her for a few minutes about, Three years of Our Land, what it means, what trends we've identified, where the series is going in the future. And then this week is actually the week for Our Land for this month. And you've probably heard us talk about it a little bit already, but the Gila River Diversion Plan is something we've tracked on the show, and it looks like that has now been defeated for good. So Laura Paskus, they she and our photojournalist, production manager, Anthony Lostetter, went down and visited the Gila about a year ago, and we wanted to revisit some of that amazing footage. It's just a beautiful part of the state, and also get an update on whether or not this is really the end of this controversial diversion plan. So here now, our land. This month
1: marks three years of our environmental series, Our Land. It's become a favorite for many of you during that time, thanks to its stunning video, and also thanks to environmental correspondent, Laura Paskus. Laura, when you started Arlin, what did you want to do?
5: Hi, Jean. So we were hoping to bring complicated science to New Mexico PBS viewers, but wrapped up in a way that was visually appealing and also really kind of um, evokes the love that so many New Mexicans feel for our landscapes and our rivers and our communities.
1: Mm. What's changed since you've been covering the environment with us? Uh, attitudes, data? What's, what's been different that you've discovered?
5: Yeah, we've seen big flips um, on the political side of things on the state level and the federal level, kind of opposite flips there when it comes to environmental policy. But we've seen a growing awareness of climate change. Um, Most New Mexicans understand that climate change is happening. There were recent numbers just out from the Yale Um, Department of Climate Change Communication, which showed that 92 percent of registered Democrats in New Mexico understand that climate change is happening, and 51 percent of Republicans in New Mexico. So New Mexicans know that climate change is happening.
1: Laura, like all of us, you've been stuck inside when it comes to producing new R-Land episodes. When you do get the all clear to start venturing out again, what's ahead?
5: We have a really neat episode coming up later this summer about the Animas River, and once we can get back out again, I'm looking forward to more stories about New Mexico's tribal communities and land management, and some good stories on rivers and forests and things like that.
1: Speaking of rivers, I hear there's some activity at the Gila River uh, Wilderness. What's going on there?
5: Right. So our episode this month focuses on an update on the Gila River Diversion Project. Recently, the state... Um, voted to stop funding the diversion project and the um, New Mexico cap entity down there in southwestern New Mexico is going to push back against that decision. But um, it's a development that I'm sure lots of New Mexicans are really interested in. Mm Ralph Schmidt peterson the state of New Mexico voted in 2014, when I should mention you were not on the commission at that time, to greenlight the Gila Diversion Project and move forward with that. Just recently, six years later, the commission has voted to end funding for environmental studies on the Diversion Project. Does this effectively end plans for any development on the Gila?
10: And we put uh, two... Well, three questions in front of them that are directly related to your, um, your question. One was um, based upon the draft environmental impact statement that was published about six or eight weeks ago and uh, their analysis of it and staffs, did they want the Interstate Stream Commission staff to continue working with the Bureau of Reclamation on that NEPA process? Um, and the commission, after a considerable amount of discussion, uh, said they did not, and they directed us to to kind of stop and slow that process and ultimately end it. Uh, and we're in the process of taking those steps now. Um, in addition to that, they um, voted uh, to not fund the Bureau of Reclamation for the uh, completing or continuing that NEPA process. That was about $635,000. And then they directed us to work with the rural communities in that area. And they highlighted um, the the fact that in having been in those areas, they saw a lot of the concerns and issues that that a lot of the farmers and irrigators had. And they wanted us to to continue working with them, but on what we call non-unit projects, which are projects that don't involve this exchange of Arizona Water Settlement Act
5: water. This has been a controversial project, and people all over the state have had um, lots of opinions about it. And I'm curious, moving forward, what are your hopes for water planning in southwestern New Mexico, and how people can come together and, and move forward into the future?
10: Uh, well, Laura, it, it really has been a very contentious effort, and you know I've been working on water issues in the state for 20 years now and and that issue and the issue on the southwest region really has been if not the most contentious probably close to it Um, i'm really hoping that um that we can help to bring the the, kind of a more broader group of people in those communities together uh, to look at a wider range of potential activities that could be put on the ground i know that there are um, you know, concerns that our commission expressed about these bulldozer push-up diversion dams in the river that are there in the San Francisco River Valley and the Gila River Valley. Uh, they directed us to really focus to work with those entities to see if we can put something in place that is more helpful for those parties but also more environmentally friendly. Um, they were very concerned about the potential threat of, uh, to New Mexico farmers down in Verden, where there was a potential uh, that those farmers' ability to use some of their water would be d- restricted due to litigation in Arizona, and they wanted us to evaluate that. And then more generally, having visited the area, and I think from their, their general backgrounds, they're very concerned about uh, our rural communities and uh, and finding ways to to provide support to those communities that that helps them with the water needs, but is also environmentally conscious.
5: Norm Gomm, you're the former director of the New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission. And it's fair to say you've spent at least the last six years obsessively fighting against the proposed diversion of the Gila River. What's so significant about the ISC's recent vote on the Gila?
11: Well, it reversed um, 16 years of effort by that agency to try to make something work out of this uh, federal authorization that they have to buy water and develop it in southwest New Mexico, buy water in Arizona, trade that water they bought in Arizona for diversions from the Gila and make sense out of uh, who needs the water and who could pay for it in southwest New Mexico. And nothing made sense.
5: People say, including the attorney for the New Mexico CAP entity, Pete de Medici Jr., I've heard people say that if New Mexico doesn't take advantage of this water, we lose it to Arizona, to other potential users. Can you talk about that? And can you talk about the water that was allocated to the state through the 2004 Arizona Water Settlements Act? Is that actually wet water that is flowing through the river?
11: Theoretically, it is. I actually think it's maybe more similar to, to Virga. You, you can talk about it, you can think about it, and you might even be able to see it, but it is out of our grasp.
5: This has been a very long project, a very expensive project, and a very lucrative project for attorneys, engineering firms, and some former state officials. Can you talk about how much money the state has already spent of this federal subsidy, where that money has gone, and who have been some of the winners and the losers along the way?
11: Well, um, we we can talk about the uh, so-called winners uh, first. The state has spent $16 million over 15 years trying to plan this project. That's all they've done is is so-called planning. It's not really even planning because they avoided all of the investigations that would lead them to negative answers. Um, And the winners are the consultants who agreed to report back to the ISC what what they wanted to hear. more recently, Pete uh, Domenici, the lawyer for the New Mexico Cap Entity, has made over half a million dollars. The former state engineer who steered this project uh, when he was state engineer, uh, his firm, I think, has made about half a million dollars. Other consultants that work for the ISC have cleared over a million and the Interstate Stream Commission just paid 5.3 million dollars to the federal government to prepare the environmental impact statement, and most of that, I think, went to contractors. And they did uh, what—it's—it's it's the worst document I've ever seen, Laura, with regard to veracity and truth, and science and facts. Um, and even so, they concluded, you know, based on their totally biased analysis, that this project could never fly
5: a lot of money and a lot of time. So there have been a number of proposals to dam the Gila River over the decades. This wasn't the first one. Do you think it will be the last one?
11: I don't know. I mean, all of the proposals, uh, well, the recent proposals all stem from this 1968 political authorization. Um, and there were, there were uh, those attempts were Hooker Dam, Connor Dam, A development in Magus Creek and now this latest uh, episode which went up and down the river searching for a location that would work with with no success. The federal government set aside the original Hooker Dam site in 1918 and soon after that concluded that there was no water available for diversion and you know it's totally impractical to develop the water but to say that we've learned our lessons as a as a society or the proponents have learned from their awful experience and their huge expenditures and their failure, I don't think they've learned a thing.
5: Well, thank you so much, Norm, for joining us. It's um, a far cry to be on Zoom from where we were last summer, reporting from the Gila, but thanks for joining us.
0: to the line panel. We want to continue coverage on COVID-19 issues. The state announced this week it was going to start issuing loans, emergency loans, to small businesses and businesses hurt by COVID-19 in the state. It's a a bit of a novel approach in terms of the the state being the lending agency in this kind of a relationship, but obviously it is help and support that is needed across the state with the, the hit on the economy. And so we wanted to check in with the line and see what they think about the plan and the strategy and the idea and whether or not it will have the impact that everyone hopes it will.
1: Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has signed a bill passed during the special session that provides emergency low interest loans to businesses that are struggling to get by right now. It dips into the state severance tax permanent fund to do so to the tune of 400 million dollars. Dan, let me start with you. The State Investment Council spoke up during what little time the lawmakers had to vet this plan. Their analysis shows it would not be surprising if there were higher default rates, maybe significantly higher if this in this program. Now that's millions of dollars of these extraordinary measures in extraordinary times, certainly. But are you sensing a little bit of a failure on the oversight side
4: of this? Gene, I will just tell you this. That, mm-hmm. and- I hope Dee will will agree with me we don't have a very good record as a state when we start putting programs together to loan money out to people because it always seems to be our buddies or somebody's buddy that seems to get the money whether it's building a site or building this or loaning money for that so I I wouldn't be surprised to see you know once this comes out um this this loan forgiveness program um where we're going to be you know uh yeah I I think it's going to pose serious problems I mean I think at the end of the day You know we you know they wind up and the feds do this a lot too right we saw this with the ppp program hey we get the money we give it to the banks the banks will figure out a way to give it out to people who do you think they're going to give the money to they're going to give it to their most you know the the people that they've got the the greatest investment in right the one they got the most risk of losing money at for Mm -hmm. so you know i mean the end of the day um i think the government has a job to be there I'm not sure that you know sitting around and saying, "Hey, we're going to dip into the permanent fund to the tune of almost half a billion dollars, and uh, we're just going to go ahead and give that out to to businesses when they go through some sort of a process." I mean, our history in New Mexico. You know, I can just remember when I was there. From we were going to invest. Didi, you probably remember. You know, we were going to loosen up the investment deal so we can invest in fine arts and instruments at one point under Governor Richardson. You know, to I mean, you name it. So. I just say the best indication of future behavior is past behavior and our past behavior when it comes to building state-run lending programs has not, has been less than, less Mm -hmm. than that.
1: Didi, go ahead and pick up on that if you'd like. And I do have a question for you as well.
3: Well, it's a mixed, it's a mixed record. And I think there have been some improvements since that, the mid aughts, Dan, uh, in those, uh, in those requirements, the New Mexico finance, Authority will be overseeing these loans, um, but I agree. I mean, it requires oversight. And so does the federal program. I mean, the federal program, uh, it seems to be going to uh, areas of the country with the least need. Um, and uh, there's a lot of unused uh, funding and you're right, the bankers are giving it to their best cu- uh, uh, customers rather than the people that are really in need. But what is the alternative? The alternative is bankruptcy and uh, continued uh, job loss. So, you know, we you work with the tools that you have. And, um, you know, if you if you don't wanna just outright give people, people money as they did in Europe, right. um, uh, then uh, perhaps uh, this is, is just one of the, the few tools we have out there.
1: Good point there. Dave, you know, the qualifications, I'm hearing from business owners they're actually kind of excited because the qualifications are not that stiff, so to speak. Right. You know, a 30% year-to-year decline in April and May. A lot of folks can show that. You don't have to fudge numbers to right. do that. Right. Um, you can't have revenues above $5 million. Are we targeting
2: the right people here, though, when I put those things out Any- there? I mean, I think I think, look, any amount of money that we can get to the small business owner, you know, in this country, we completely glorify the small business owner and then we make it difficult for him to run a business. It's insane. And, you know, um, but I want to make one point. President Kennedy was very fond of a phrase. And he said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. We have lots of danger around. And I think Dan's point about lack of communication is really key. We need leaders from everyone, from the mayors to the city councilors to everybody else saying, here's a plan. Okay, maybe that plan isn't perfect. Franklin Roosevelt, when he got elected in 1932, the country was flat on its back and he immediately started he closed the bags he started throwing these alphabet, uh, you know, groups together, con- uh, con- Conservation Corps, all of them. And if something didn't work, he stopped it and tried something new. I think right now our politicians and all of us in general, we're paralyzed. You have nothing to fear, but fear itself. Yet, you know, something is better than nothing and throwing some money somewhere is good. If you're gonna give out another $3 trillion, try giving $10,000 to every American who is over the age of 21 because that money is going to end up at bank of America and chase Manhattan. What are you going to do? Keep it under your mattress. Let's try some, rather than the voodoo economics of trickle down, let's try some pushing it up. That would be my suggestion. The points there.
1: Hey, DD, Dee Dee, I got a question for you, Dan, I want you in on this one too, but the big news, Dan mentioned this, the PPP situation. Now we just had some <laughs> very unfortunate reporting on this about who actually got this money. It's just not a good look when you got people like Kanye West and other people getting bailout money. My favorite being the Anne Rhine Foundation, which lives and breathes its purpose for being is to rail against the government giving money away. Right. Right. <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> uh, so what could they do? You know, they're, they're talking about lowering the threshold for this next potential uh, round. What can the government, federal government get better this time around?
3: Well, there needs to be oversight. There mm-hmm. needs to be a lot more oversight, and um, the uh, I was really stunned to see that religious organizations can receive uh, government funding like this, um, and and big bucks. I mean, real big bucks—a million dollars mm-hmm. plus. Um, they are perhaps
1: Calvary, Calvary here in Albuquerque, the big yes,
3: Calvary Go. here Go. in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a counterpoint to Bosque Brewing that also receives a, a million bucks. So. You know, maybe that's just an even-handed approach, Mm -hmm. but um, I think that there needs to be a little bit more logic applied, a lot lot more assessment as to, um, as Dave said, who are the small businesses that employ a lot of people that are are busy filling social needs uh, rather than putting the money into their own pockets? I mean, we saw what happened to the bailout and uh, the banks got so much money um, that and and ordinary people got foreclosed upon. Uh, so I think, you know, we need to we need oversight.
1: I've got to wrap that up there. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Dan, my fault there. I got to, I got a little miss, messed up on time. They're out of time on that. Hopefully others are watching where this money goes, but we'll keep an eye on it, too. Thanks to you all for being here on the line for sure.
0: Okay, before we wrap up this week, we've got another great segment for you, non COVID nineteen related. Well, there's some there's some parallels and some some crossovers here, but we've talked a lot about the primary election, which was uh, primarily focused on absentee voting and getting people the ability to vote without having to go in person. And it was a mixed bag in terms of how that all went. The turnout was high, but there were a lot of challenges, especially for Native American communities lost voting sites that uh, do not have reliable postal um, service, and so the absentee ballots became a challenge. Even in Santa Fe, there was a big issue with um, the timeliness of people getting absentee ballots, and in some cases not getting them in time to even mail them back, so they had to turn them in in person, which kind of defeated the purpose of the, ma- the absentee ballot approach, and we're going to be living with a lot of this, it appears, during the general election in November. And so um, we sat down with UNM political science professor Gabe Sanchez, who's been studying this issue and has come up with some ideas on how we can make this all work a little better come November and make sure that everybody's votes um, can get counted and that everybody has that opportunity to cast that ballot as we head into the general elections. So here now, Gabe Sanchez and correspondent Gwyneth Doland.
1: The June primary was an unnecessarily difficult voting process, according to UNM political science professor Gabriel Sanchez. He wrote that in a policy brief released a few weeks ago after the election, in which he also pointed out the steps the state can and should take to improve the situation. Here's correspondent Gwyneth Dolan with more in a special Your New Mexico Government interview.
12: Professor Sanchez, thank you so much for being with us today.
13: It's a pleasure to be here.
12: You um, have just released a paper uh, in which you say that New Mexico's cumbersome election laws impose preventable burdens on voters. What did this look like in the June primary?
13: Yeah, I think with my colleagues at UCLA, we've been doing a lot of work across the country, just analyzing what's happening with the elections right now in the context of COVID and trying to identify, in our opinion, relatively straightforward and simple fixes to some of the issues that we've seen. Um, here in New Mexico, probably the one that's caught the most attention is a pretty large number and it's still being quantified of how many folks didn't get their ballot counted because it didn't get, right, to the Secretary of State's office to be counted on time. And so I think one of the relatively simple fixes is, you know, we've suggested that you can essentially canvas all absentee ballots postmarked on election day that might not have been received until Up to seven days is what we're suggesting after the election. And a lot of this isn't the secretary of state's fault. It's not county clerk's fault. We all know, right? The postal service is overwhelmed right now and there's a lot of delays. Um, So in our opinion, you can address that, right? With our legislation and just allow those ballots, right? To be essentially counted if they're postmarked but they don't actually get to where they're intended until up to seven days. Um, And I know that the challenge is, you know, you don't get the results as quickly as you might like But I think it's more important to make sure everybody who actually intended to fill out their ballot on time, if it's postmarked, that gets counted.
12: You also found um, that there was confusion about those deadlines. And, you know, we are all accustomed, well, maybe not all of us, to paying our taxes at the last minute. And, you know, the IRS is is good as long as you're um, postmarked by their deadline. So I, I think there probably are a lot of people who weren't sure when things had to be done.
13: Yeah, and keep in mind for the primary, right? This was by far the greatest number of people who have voted by absentee ever before in state history. So that means you've got a lot of folks who are used to voting in person that utilize this for the first time. And just like anything else, you do it for the first time, unfortunately, there's a lot of uncertainty and folks might make some mistakes. And I think the the point of this is just to ensure that folks have a little bit of a grace period, particularly because if it's postmarked by election day, Right? It's outside of their control whether or not it actually gets there on time.
12: One of the other things that you mentioned was um, sort of it, uh, not enough control in tracking your request for the ballot and, and where it is and where it's going. Uh, what, you know, what did that look like?
13: Yeah, I think uh, positively, and I, I want to stress that I think our state actually did an incredible job in arguably the most difficult election to administer in state's history. So this is not to be overly critical, but hopefully helpful in identifying some of the simple things that can be done. And on the positive side, this was actually news for me because I had never voted by absentee before this election that you can actually get on the webpage and track in theory where it's at in the process. So you as a voter can identify, oh wait, it hasn't got there yet. Maybe I should actually show up on election day and make sure my ballot got in or fill out a provisional. That's incredibly helpful, but it requires voters to go a couple of steps Themselves and puts a little bit more cost on the voters' perspective. So one of the things that a lot of states do is essentially establish a curing process for rejected ballots, and essentially puts a little bit more stress on the state to really contact voters and say, "Hey, you your your ballot was flagged; it was rejected," and gives them a time period to be able to address that. If it wasn't the signature in the right place, if there wasn't something that was done, it uh, basically allows the voter to be informed about that and gives them some time to correct it. And again, I think that's an important step because it, it also increases trust in voters to use the absentee ballot process, particularly if we start to see incredible spikes in COVID as November comes around. A lot of folks might be really hoping to trust this system so they don't have to go vote in person. I think that step could do a long way to improving trust.
12: You also found, and we talked about this before the election, problems with disenfranchising Native American voters. Um, so what did, what did you find in your paper?
13: Well, I think, in my opinion, that's the biggest issue to tackle. I mean, little small things, you never wanna see voters disenfranchised, period. Right? Nobody ever wants to see that. But if it's not systemic, meaning there's not a particular group or class of people that are being disproportionately impacted by our system, that's really where I focus a lot of my energy. And in the primary, we, we know that, unfortunately, our Native American community was disproportionately impacted uh, for two reasons. One, a lot of those folks don't have physical addresses. So being able to request an absentee ballot is more cumbersome for them. They might have to leave their their reservation on more than one occasion to be able to even mail out their ballot and access it and all those different things, it's just more cost for them. And probably the most important was unfortunately because COVID is impacting those communities at a much higher rate, right, there was decisions made in in partnership with tribes to not have polling centers on reservation lands, which normally happens in most of these places. So that again puts added pressure on those folks to have to leave their community, to be able to vote in person if they have challenges doing so in terms of absentee ballots. That again, disproportionately impacts one specific segment of our community. And I think that's a problem.
12: Yeah, I mean, you know, recalling that we're in a pandemic, we're trying to make it easier for people to vote with an absentee ballot. And here we have this group of people who we're essentially forcing to leave their houses um, and go much farther than folks who live in Albuquerque or Las Cruces or whatever. Um, you mentioned the non-traditional addresses. You know, we all know someone who lives kind of far out and the directions to get there are, you make a left at the big tree and you go through two you know, ranch gates and you make a right. Um, Why does this matter?
13: Well, I think the the challenge is, right, if we're thinking about absentee ballots, that's specifically designated to a physical address for a lot of good reasons, right? In many cases, you cannot vote on a particular election if you don't live in that jurisdiction, right? So if it's county commissioner, a lot of these lower ballot races, right, not everybody gets to weigh in with a vote on those issues. So having a physical address makes a lot of sense But what if you're one of those individuals that lives in a rural area of our state who doesn't have a physical address? Again, that complicates things for you. That makes things a little bit more difficult. That adds more costs for you to be able to access, right, the ballot, particularly in the context of an absentee ballot where all of that is driven for the most part by a physical address.
12: We also have, you know, there are jurisdictions in New Mexico that are still um, required by the Voting Rights Act to provide access for folks who do not speak English or Spanish. Um, And so, you know, we have these translators who are typically posted at the polling sites, um, but we, how does that work with voting by mail?
13: Yeah, see, this is the complexity, right? Most of us will say it's the devil's in the details when you're looking at laws or policies, right? And so the Voting Rights Act particularly protects what are called language minorities, We typically think of those as Spanish speakers nationally, but here in New Mexico, that includes a number of different tribal languages. And so one step that is taken often is to have translators on election day, you know, available for folks who don't speak English. That's great. But in the context of COVID, again, we're seeing record numbers of people not showing up to vote in person. So our suggestion is, right, have essentially everything that goes out in terms of the election, the request for an absentee ballot, the absentee ballot itself, all of that information available in those other languages beyond English and in this context, even Spanish. Um, And our research team, uh, they did a lot of spot checking. They called essentially every county office to request information about other languages and in almost every case, folks didn't actually know if that was actually taking place. And I think that just identifies again, a relatively simple thing that can happen if we plan ahead and we just translate all that information into those languages ahead of time so that folks don't feel like they have to go to vote in person because that's the only place I can get translation.
12: Now, the state legislature was in session when your policy brief came out. Did they take any of your advice?
13: Well, I think there was a, a couple of very positive steps. Um, like, like most things, I will say, there was some positive steps that were taken. There definitely could have been more, and I think there still can be more uh, that takes place before the November election. So on two positives, one very similar to the primary, uh, the county clerks will mail mail applications for absentee ballots out to each mailable voter in, in their respective county. So I think that's a very positive step, right? It, it's uh, I think giving the voters the opportunity to respond to that request instead of me having to figure out how do I request a ballot? I think that's a positive step, we saw that work in the context of of the primary, I would say positively much higher turnout, almost record turnout for a primary without presidential candidates to vote on in the primary. Why did that happen? My answer is because we simplified the process and made it easier for voters. So I think that's a positive. And second, in the context of of tribal voters, which again, Native Americans, in my opinion, are the most important group to focus on because we know they face challenges during the primary. Uh, The legislation that was passed and signed by our governor essentially says there will be no significant changes to polling locations without written consent and request by tribes. I think that step really respects tribal sovereignty and shows the state wants to work in concert with tribes and not make any unilateral decisions that would negatively impact tribes. So I think those are very positive steps. Um, were there other things that could be done? Obviously the brief suggested a handful of other things that didn't make it into legislation, uh, but I think we, we should respect the two important things that were done and hopefully build on that between now and November and moving forward.
12: So, you know, back in uh, early June, we were still thinking it might be possible the pandemic could kind of wrap up. Now it seems increasingly likely we'll be in a similar position for November. Um, you know, so we um, they made some changes. The governor signed them. What will your top priorities be going into the next legislative session, if a lawmaker asked you, hey, now we have a chance, what they, you know, some of what they just did was temporary. We have a chance in a longer session to do this more seriously. What would your bullet points be? Do these three things.
13: I think number one is we've seen the positive benefits of really increasing access to absentee mail-based ballots in New Mexico. Why should that be temporary? Why can't we always mail? requests for absentee ballots out to every eligible voter period but i think many states our neighbor to the north of colorado has exclusive mail-based voting right i'm not necessarily saying go all the way there but why not always make mail-based voting more accessible to folks regardless of whether or not we're in a health scare or not i think that would be number one Uh, number two i think thinking more deeply about how to just assume covid 19 is going to be there in november and try to do as much for tribal entities as possible. The thing that we recommend in our brief is why not have polling precincts on or very close to tribal lands that only tribal members can access? That way you don't have non-tribal members violating right, a lot of tribes' well-intentioned policies to restrict access to keep COVID-19 down. Why not think about that? right? And I think that could be done between now and November if we really wanted to do so. And third, Um, especially if we think about increasing access to mail-based ballots moving forward, I think that curing process is incredibly important. And again, curing just basically means if you identify there's a problem with the ballot, inform that voter and give them adequate time to be able to address that so that their vote can be counted. I think the worry for me is if folks don't know that they had a concern with their ballot in the first place, they're not going to take any appropriate steps to try to address that and their vote won't be counted. And they probably would never even
12: know that. All right, we'll keep those in mind for the next session. Thank you so much for being
0: with us.
13: Always a pleasure to, to be on with you folks. Thanks for having me.
0: As always, we'd like to leave you with some thoughts from host Gene Grant about the week that was. And it's a good time to remind you too. You can always hear more from Gene Grant if you sign up for our monthly our weekly newsletter once a month. You get some notes from Gene about all the things that we're working on and his perspective on some of the things we've covered on the show. That went out this week. If you want to sign up for that newsletter and you haven't already, just head to newmexicoandfocus.org, and you'll see a link there to sign up for it. We encourage you to do that. And as always, we've got a lot of other stuff going on during the week. We encourage you to follow us on all our social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, a couple other things to note this week. Um, a topic that's also COVID-19 related and is going to be a big, big story in the coming weeks has to do with evictions. And our producer, Kathy Wimmer, has been covering this issue. She sits, she sat down again this week on a Facebook Live with Serge Martinez. He's a line regular and also with the UNM School of Law, and he's an expert in eviction issues. And they really talk again about how um, COVID-19 is affecting evictions. There's still a moratorium in place in the state but if you didn't already know, all that means is that eviction orders will still get issued, but people will not physically be kicked out of their homes. But when that moratorium gets lifted, and right now in New Mexico, it's an indefinite moratorium, so we don't know exactly when that will end. But when it ends, there will be a bunch of folks that are um, looking for new places to live and dealing with the repercussions of an eviction uh, on their economic record, their um, just the struggles that that creates cycle for for years and years and years. And so that conversation happened this week. Also, Megan Kamrick sat down to talk uh, with a historian about her podcast series, New Mexico and the Vote. We encourage you to go subscribe for that wherever you get your podcasts. It's tied to the American Experience episodes that ran this week on women's suffrage. It was called The Vote. You can stream that. Uh, right now on our website, NewMexicoPBS.org. But she looked at, in this podcast series, she's looking at the history of women's suffrage in New Mexico, which was a whole lot different than a lot of other states. And so it's a fascinating listen. encourage you to subscribe to that and go back and watch the Facebook Live if you didn't catch it at the time where she talks to Kathleen Cahill. She used to be at UNM. She's now at Penn State, but she's got a book coming out all about women's suffrage in New Mexico. So we encourage you to check out all that work Follow us on all of our social media so you can get caught up on these things when they happen. And most importantly, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And here again is Gene Grant with some final thoughts.
1: My thanks to my colleague Megan Kamrick and that young man threatened in the pet store with a person with a gun. The interview makes clear the controversy over the mandate for use of face coverings is long from over. We can have our disagreements, terrorizing a frontline retail worker isn't part of the bargain, and hopefully that person will be held to account for his actions. When the governor chastised statewide elected officials for not pulling their weight in a journal op-ed earlier this week, it really crystallized a wider sense of frustration on this issue. There's a Facebook meme out there on this called COVID exhaustion, which comes from carrying the burden for others. But let me say this, if that's the stakes of the game, then let's play it the best way we can anyway. Be a model for what you'd like to see from others, wear your mask, keep socially distanced, and yes, speak up when necessary. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.